0: This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stefan Cox. In partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network, we bring you our Deep Dive Town Hall series, learning about key issues Indivisibles care about. Today, a look at the legislative agenda for Washington for Black Lives, a black-led multiracial coalition here in the state. We are joined by three of its members, Kamal Shege, lobbyist Samuel Martin, and Representative Jesse Johnson, to discuss demands for economic justice, police and prison defunding, and ending police militarization. This was recorded live on the evening of Thursday, January 14th. Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Insider Town Hall. I'm Stephen Cox. I'm the host of the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. Thank you, as always, to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network, also Julian Gievski, Robin Gittleman, Louise Pate, and Kevin Jones. Special thanks tonight to Anil Afzali and Denise Guerrero, and an acknowledgement to Marcy Maxwell, a former uh, LD41 representative. Uh, greetings to you, my friend. So before we begin, I want to acknowledge that we live and work on the ancestral homelands of many indigenous. indigenous. Indigenous peoples throughout the Pacific Northwest. So tonight is exciting. Uh, This is our first legislative agenda deep dive town hall series. So we have put this series together to uplift the legislative agendas of groups and coalitions with whom Indivisible is working in allyship. And we want to discuss specific actions that we as Indivisibles can take in support of that agenda in this year's legislative session. Uh, And so I will just say right now, we received some questions ahead of time from you. Um, If you want to enter questions into the chat bar, it's my intention to get to them probably the last 15 minutes or so tonight. So please, as we go along, just pop your questions into the chat bar. So with that, we are very excited to be speaking with three individuals affiliated with Washington for Black Lives, a black-led multiracial coalition that includes community-based organizations, nonprofits, and faith communities across Washington State. Samuel Martin is the CEO and founder of S.D. Martin Consulting and is a lead advocate for Washington for Black Lives. Hello, Samuel.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me
0: today. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Kamal Shege is the director of the Washington Community Alliance, previously the Census Alliance, and he helps staff and support Washington for Black Lives. Hello, Kamal.
2: Hey, everybody. Glad to be here.
0: We're glad you're here. And, of course, uh, Jesse Johnson is state representative for the 30th LD and is vice chair of the House Public Safety Committee. It is my honor to welcome you back, sir. How are you tonight?
3: I'm doing pretty good. It's been a busy week. but I'm
0: glad to be here. We've been watching you. We've been watching you do a lot of that busy work. And also before we uh, go any further, congratulations on your reelection. We are so glad to have your continued service here in the state. So I thought maybe where we would start is with you, Sam, by having you tell us a little bit more about the coalition and and, uh, what its core mission is. Can you flesh that out for us a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we really think about what Washington for Black Lives is, it's really, as you kind of alluded to, a Black-led coalition of organizations across the state. And we're really looking to bolster and boost up the NA power of our communities. And I think that that's really the kind of the key crux of the work that we do is that we recognize that our communities are all powerful uh, already and that there's there's work that we can do in them to continue to uplift them um our work our group is comprised of various different uh, community based organizations nonprofits faith communities across the state um and you know we've you know our really core focuses are we have three really core focuses is defunding the police and prisons um demilitarizing police in the washington state and investing back into black and brown communities um and so really that is the kind of crux core of our work and we work together to be able to to move forward on those agenda items and i also you know i you know, chime in to my partner I'll come out to see if he had anything else to add.
2: Please, you know, um, Stephen. One of you mentioned that um, I uh, the organizing I've been doing for the last two years was uh, around the census, and everybody saw how that got um, so politicized and uh, racialized was used um, to divide. And we created <clears throat> Washington Census Alliance, um, a coalition of communities of color. Um, and tribes around the state. And amidst the uprisings of uh, last year in the wake of the killing of Manuel Allison Tacoma, but also George Floyd and and Breonna Taylor, um, our Black-led members wanted to make sure that we didn't just get everybody counted, we actually made sure everybody counts. And that um, that starts with making sure that Black Lives Matter. And, looking at the racial disparities that we've seen in Washington State, there was a real need to uh, form a statewide coalition and continue um, organizing uh, into this year to win the kind of legislation and structural and systemic change that um, would actually let us live in uh, a state that values black lives and so we've been really proud of our member organizations that created Washington for Black Lives and um we're ready to fight and win that change uh this year.
0: Well there is so much to unpack here tonight and all of it is contained or or a lot of it is contained within the legislative agenda Um, as Sam mentioned there are three buckets that he laid out we'll get to those in just a moment but you know because we're going to talk a lot about police reform tonight I think I would like to frame our discussion around the insurrection that we saw at the U.S. Capitol and also the the breach that we saw at the governor's mansion, because it is extraordinarily clear uh, the difference uh, between how law enforcement sees and treats white domestic terrorists versus black and brown people of color. And I'd like to give each of you a moment to speak to that. Sam, can we start with you?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And I think that it's exactly what you said initially, it's the stark difference in in contrast in how folks are treated. And this is rhetoric that has been built up over the last few months, over the last half a year, over the last four years, right? This is something that we've seen coming. This is Charlottesville, this was Michigan last year, this was Olympia. And so for us to be able to see that this is something that has continued to reoccur, these threats on our our democracy uh, is, is really disheartening. And it really takes me back to a time in 2010. let will share a little story. In 2010, I was interning in Congress, and I was able to attend a celebratory um, event with the late uh, Representative John Lewis and the late Rep. Elijah Cummings, celebrating the slaves that built the Capitol building. And to see it desecrated in such a way, something that our ancestors built, and to, on top of that, to see the, uh, the way in which our current democracy was devalued is really disheartening. There's multiple layers to... The difficulty in which um, in, in, the di- in which that displayed—it's really just disheartening. Is, and it's it's sad to see. Um, and again, but this isn't new. This is our history. This is this has been something that has shown up and reared its ugly head multiple times in our country. And I'll defer to my to my other colleagues.
0: Well, the, I'll, I'll turn it to you, Representative Johnson. Um, how do you see uh, the context uh, of you know what we've seen uh, in this country and in this state over the last, uh, I guess, week now?
3: Well, thank you, Stephen. Uh What it shows really is how our system has become, I believe, so choked by corruption and complacency and the double standard that uh, Sam talked about with the black and brown community and the protests we saw over the summer and the demonstrations versus what we saw last week is stark. And that's exactly why you know, black people are, make up less than 13% of the U.S. population, yet we're being killed at twice the rate as white Americans. And uh, a lot of times, you know, most of these folks that you know, are being killed in our community are unarmed and present no threat. Meanwhile, you have armed uh, individuals going to the Capitol building and being let into the building literally and taking selfies with officers. So, you know, it shows the racism and the level of white supremacy that are real issues in this country. Um, and it's being reflected through the police force, but also through all of our institutions. And it's just something that we gotta fix. And, and I think in Washington State, you know, we're, we're no different. We have to make sure that we're leading our, on our values and making sure that we're um, leading this charge in terms of uh, police reform and uh, institutional equity.
0: You, in particular, are leading this charge, and we're going to talk about uh, a a number of bills that you are spearheading. Uh, But Kamal, I I love your perspective on this as well.
2: Yeah, I the thing that I've been uh, thinking about has been so hard to shake off, maybe because it was um, made so stark, is um, this is uh, a, a long time. Coming crisis that's been built up and a fire that's that's been stoked and it's particularly because um, we're becoming a multiracial democracy for the very first time and our institutions were not made uh, for that. One of the things that we used to talk about you know, the census, which is like the uh, portrait of america the foundation of democracy like who's even in it and who's it for is people were straight up written out of um uh, america and american democracy explicitly um, when it comes to um indian country and then uh you know it was the, the one place in the constitution that uh, that acknowledged the presence of slavery by counting black folks as three fifths and not only that but at the time of the founding, you know, only 6% of people in America were even eligible to vote, to have uh, power over our democracy. It was, our institutions were made for white minority rule. And um, there's only been small blimps where we've made real forward progress in uh, equal citizenship, in civic equality. And it's always uh, resulted in a violent backlash, because there is uh, a contingent that really doesn't want to have um, civic equality and multiracial democracy, and all of that um, exploded on January 6th, and I think now the thing that's different is there isn't majority support for racist minority rule. That's very clear. Um, but our institutions are allowing um, white supremacy to still take a hold of power. You know, we um, have a national legislature that, um, you know, allows a minority of the population to have a majority of, uh, uh, to be able to elect a majority in the Senate seats or in the election, even with the electoral college. And the person who stoked the insurrection on January 6th, has been able to appoint a fourth of the federal seats in, in the federal um, courts and a third of the Supreme Court. This is like a real yeah. problem. And what we're gonna need to do, um, you know, and what I think we, we we have to do as a state is model for the country what it means to live in a multiracial democracy where all of us can participate, all of us can be equal participants um in it and that's you know uh, uh, sure it's it's voting rights and that sort of thing representation of proportional representation but it's also the things that we're talking about today and the work that sam is leading with washington for black lives which is uh, civic equality and civil rights and being able to hold the police in 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 our communities accountable and have um you know a government that's working for all of us and not one that, um, you know, placates to uh, racism. And that's gonna mean a lot of organizing to create that kind of uh, institutional change.
0: (laughs) I appreciate you taking such a a big, uh, you know, sort of 30,000 foot view of all of it and providing so much context. Uh, And, you know, the place where the Washington for Black Lives legislative guide opens is on economic justice and and in many of the the ways that the racial and wealth disparities play out here in the state. Uh, Sam, I'm wondering if you can sort of tick down some of those statistics that are contained within the legislative guide.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think really some of the bigger challenges, especially when we think about the disparity in income and in the economy are, you look at in 2015, you know, Black families in Washington State had a median income of nearly $18,000 less than the state median, right? And so for black families to be making $18,000 less on average is a huge issue, right? That's a huge disparity. Why are black and brown communities in particular, the ones who are not offered and granted economic opportunities, or even just, you know, equal cost of living, especially when you look at a place like Seattle, where the cost of living has gotten drastically high and Black and brown communities have been forced out and gentrified out of their own communities. Some historic communities in which they helped to build, right? And think about the historic central district and what the black community did to build that up and how it's now been completely gentrified. Um, <clears throat> when we think about, you know, black households also have a 30% chance of being in the lowest income and the highest tax portion, right? And so when we look at how regressive our tax code is, Black and brown communities are the ones who end up paying an unjust amount into our systems, right? In fact, when we think about community or you know organizations and companies like Amazon, they pay vastly small, vastly low amounts of their total income into the tax into our tax system. Right. And so just you know, bear with me as my as I read my stats here. Um, <laughs> Amazon Seventy five billion dollars in the first three months of 2020 alone, and they paid nine million dollars in taxes, which uh, accounts to point zero zero zero. Some more zeros uh, three in revenue three percent of their revenue. Right. And so in a company that big and that impactful in our community can pay so little in taxes yet you know, black and brown communities are paying vast percentages of their own income in our own tax code. What does that say about Washington's values, right? What does that say about how we value our citizens? What does that say about how we value um, the economic growth that we've seen from our own companies? Um, yeah. So, uh,
0: yeah. Absolutely right. And, you know, that is the place, That that is the first uh, bucket uh, of the you know, the legislative agenda, as uh, the representative laid out, the you know the black and investing in black and brown communities is number one. Uh, number two is defunding police and prisons, and the third is to demilitarize the police. I think you just laid out the case, Sam, uh, for why our regressive tax structure, the the most regressive in the nation, uh, hurts uh, black and brown families. Democrats in the legislature have been pushing for a number of progressive revenue proposals, and, and so Rep- Representative Johnson, I would love to bring you in on this. We know capital gains is like right at the top of the list. How do you see its chances this year?
3: You know, that's a great question. I mean, I think, um, you know, we got to speak truth here. And I I believe that it's going to be the political will of the majority of Democrats in the legislature to pass it because we have the majority. And it's only gotten stronger after the elections this year. But there's a reason it hasn't passed for so long. It's, uh, you know, I think we have to, again, what Kamal and Sam said is so important, we have to think of equity more than just access. We have to think about it in the terms of how are the most majority of the people in the state being represented? And when you look at it right now, we're just not being represented, the working families, people of color, marginalized communities, and we have to you know, not be afraid to make critical calls in a pandemic where uh, communities of color are suffering the most. And so um, I think it really is going to come down to can We galvanize enough pressure on our legislature to to come up with this proposal and to pass it because we have the majority, like I said, and and to be honest, you know, I'll be supporting it. I said throughout my campaign that we need to pass the capital gains tax, but we got to do even more than that. Uh, We got to talk about equity. You know, I can walk into a bank and have access, but it doesn't mean I'm going to get that loan. We have to make sure that we're putting the pressure on companies and businesses across the state um, to be equitable and and it's it's up to us to to take that lead
0: You know, Sam made the case uh, for uh, taxing a company like Amazon uh, quite well, and I'll just uh, reiterate what he said. You know, Amazon made seventy-five billion dollars in the first three months of twenty twenty alone, and paid only nine million, which is point. uh, How does this go? Zero, 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 zero three percent of its revenue. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of proposals on the table, uh, including estate tax reform, billionaire wealth tax, millionaire income tax, uh, the inheritance tax, corporate high earners tax. Representative Johnson, staying with you, are you aware of any current or pending legislation on some of these other progressive taxation measures?
3: I'm not. There hasn't been anything dropped. So right now, one of the biggest things we're doing as a member of appropriations, we're looking at the budget line by line. And we're also having a progressive revenue uh, work group or task force between the Senate and the House that are talking about um, the proposals. Because one of the things that we noticed in the interim is that we, we've been talking about a lot of these issues, but we haven't strategized on implementation. We haven't brought the right advocates to the table. Unfortunately, we didn't have a special session to do that. And so right now that's happening. We do, we do have a long session. So I do think we're gonna get there. Um, but there hasn't been anything dropped in the first couple of weeks yet.
0: Well, let's shift over and talk about the second and largest area of focus in your legislative agenda, and that is defunding police and prisons. We'll spend a good uh, amount of time here. And just to contextualize this, um, Sam, if I could ask you, how much do we currently spend on policing in the state and where is it spent?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I can tell you up at least until in recently in 2017, the Washington State Patrol spent seven hundred seven hundred million dollars on state patrol. Um, And, you know, over the last decade, we spent roughly about thirty five million dollars on crowd control equipment. And so we really do recognize that we spent, um, you know, upwards of hundreds of millions of dollars on law enforcement, just in on the state patrol alone. And so that doesn't really account for local jurisdictions, community, or counties, and other, um, you know, law enforcement jurisdictions. And so we're really looking at billions of dollars that are spent on uh, law enforcement across our state. Um, and again, we spend a vast amount of that on uh, militarized equipment, crowd control equipment, all things that have been proven through research that are not effective, and they don't actually, um, you know, Achieve the purpose in which they were required for, which is to make the make you know makes you know increase safety. It in fact yeah. uh, decreases safety and you know um, really victimizes our citizens. Um, And we can just look back to some of the way in which our uh, citizens were treated in this last summer and how the police were um, using, you know, tear gas and things that are not even allowed in um, in war. Right. And and (laughs) these are against the rules of engagement. And so when we are using things like that on our own civilians, again, what does it say about our values?
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, that circles us right back to where we began our conversation and and, and framing it uh, around the way in which, um, you know, black and brown protesters are treated versus white insurrectionists. Uh, Representative Johnson, you've prime sponsored uh, uh, just a a really impressive number of bills on police reform for this year's session. So I'd like to start by talking about HB 1054. I watched some of the public testimony for this. Um, This would restrict the use of certain police tactics. What more can you tell us about this?
3: Yeah, so the goal really is to make sure that we're providing alternatives um, because a lot of the tactics that we named that we wanna prohibit are only used in the case of black and brown communities typically, or they're used in a way that um, leads to deadly force. And the whole goal is to deescalate. So we're trying to find safer, more efficient alternatives to policing. We have a lot of strategies on that and tactics, but um, this bill will prohibit certain tactics that we know and data has said lead to disproportionate impacts for communities of color. So that is banning chokeholds and neck restraints, uh, banning no-knock warrants, uh, like we've seen with the Breonna Taylor case, banning tear gas, like Sam just mentioned, uh, unleash police dogs, which is another issue that is not talked about a lot. Um, Also, it will restrict vehicular pursuits and shooting at a moving vehicle. So we have a lot of different tactics here that we've done research on. We have families that testified it on Tuesday that just did a powerful job at summarizing what their experience, their lived experience has been. And then when you look at the demilitarization list, a lot of um, this equipment, like Sam mentioned, when you talk about armed vehicles, you talk about uh, rocket launchers and and grenades and uh, directed energy systems, a lot of this stuff is not even really used in military. That's why it's surplus. And so why are they being used in our own communities? And so I think the whole mentality is to create more of a guardian of the community versus a warrior cop. And that's what we have to transition from.
0: You mentioned the public testimony, which I watched part of, and it was, a lot of it was wrenching. And, and I'm wondering, do you feel that that had an impact on your fellow lawmakers?
3: I did. I mean, I really appreciated the fact that it was tough. We had, we had less than two hours to get, we had 250 people signed in to testify. We only got to about 20. So uh, that tells you what the list was, what was about. But I think, I think the stories did have an impact on committee members. Um, I was really honestly a little bit uh, confused at some of the questions from the Republican members. Although, I mean, you know, that's their right to ask those questions. But when you ask a mother whose kid was killed by the police, you know, do, does she really think it was because he was black and get into the details of the case? I thought that was a little bit insensitive. So yeah. um, it was an interesting hearing, but I think it's a good step. Uh, I know we're gonna keep pushing this forward. And the coalition that I'm working with on police accountability, we are working together. We're, we're working with law enforcement, but there's certain things we're just not going to compromise on. And I think we, we saw this year when we compromise, it can lead to further negative outcomes for our community. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how this goes.
0: hundred percent agreed on that. Um, I, I will mention one of the more impactful proposals uh, for police accountability uh, in the agenda is the creation of independent civilian oversight boards. And so we'll unpack this uh, fully in just a moment, but Kamal, can you just tell us as it stands now, who currently oversees and investigates police misconduct here in the state?
2: So right now there's a disparate kind of bodies. There's places like King County in Seattle that uh, have um, some civilian uh, oversight boards, but we've heard that, you know, Th- they feel like they don't have the power they need to actually perform adequate oversight. Um, there's places like Spokane that have ombudsman's and you get the same complaints, you know, whether it's the, the president of the NAACP there and, and, and other leaders we have in Spokane that feel that doesn't quite give uh, community the ability to perform oversight. And what people uh, saw um, or some of the tragedy that we've seen are a result of the fact that right now we have a system where police investigate themselves and nobody believes that's fair at all. Um, you know, there's no profession where where that's the case. And what we feel needs to take place is that power going back to uh, the community, to we the people, to perform oversight over the um, um, only public servants that we give the uh, you know, uh, a right to use force. And we have a right to perform oversight about that and actually have um, power over the police in our community. So that when another, um, um, if another tragedy takes place, if there are instances where um, we see that the people who are sworn to protect and serve are not valuing black life, we have the ability to ask questions. And the thing that uh, we love about working with, Washington for Black Lives and uh, Representative Johnson and Representative Kirsten Harris-Talley, the other lead, is they really listened and their are important things in here, like you know making sure that they five uh, percent of police budgets go towards oversight, you know taking um, that uh, money that's currently you know in, in a lot of um, police budget and reinvesting it back in community to provide uh, adequate oversight, compensate people for their time going through that making sure that the police chiefs and the people who are ultimately answerable to the public are selected from candidates that the community recommends. And then when the community recommends um, uh, actions, it has the power to investigate, and they don't hear back, because it's often the case with OPA um, in Seattle and far too often across the state, um, the police chief has to come down and answer for why recommendations weren't taken and why policies from the community are being implemented. And so we're pushing hard for this bill. It would represent by far the largest shift in power um, away from police and back to community that we've seen anywhere in the country.
0: And the bill that you're referring to, I believe, uh, Representative Johnson, and this is your prime sponsoring, this is HB 1203. Uh, Anything that you would like to add uh, to what Kamal just said about it?
3: Actually, Kamal summed it up very well, but I will say, I mean, I think... uh, this is a a community grassroots led bill with the Washington uh, for Black Lives uh, organization. They've done a great job. We've been meeting for months now and coming up with ideas on how to make this bill better, working with uh, different folks that have been around uh, with with police reform for a long time. Um, I will say when we talk about um, community oversight, again, like how are we making sure that Community has a voice in in local administrative investigations, so some of the things that we're doing with this is giving power back to community to look at law enforcement officer complaints, look at acts of misconduct, any discriminatory acts, or even suggestions of policies they feel would have a positive impact on the people in the community. So, um, like Kamal said, it's a big shift, the 5% um, with the budget. Um, and it also is saying right now we have it at ten office, ten officers or more. So every department across the, the state with ten officers or more would have to come up with a community oversight board in that jurisdiction. So um, we're, we're aiming for the moon on this, and we're really uh, going to work hard and make sure that it gets across the finish line. But again, community has to have some type of of say in what's happening in their local community. We have to localize it because uh, otherwise, you know, it, it's it's not, um, not enough representation from community when you look at the the current way that we do law enforcement. So I'm really excited about this bill.
0: And that actually leads to our first audience question. And this is a biggie. Uh, And this is actually one that goes through my head quite a bit. Uh, Christy Stewart-Stein asks, do you think the police departments can in fact be reformed? The current uh, personnel seem irredeemably compromised. Do we just have to start over from the ground up? And I guess what I would add to that is, do we feel that there is something culturally I'm searching for the right word here, that there's something culturally broken about our our, our police departments and our, our police force. Samuel, would, would you like to take a crack at that?
1: Yeah, I'll also allow my colleagues to kind of chime in too. Um, I think that that's a really complex and complicated question. I think that at the, at the onset, one of the first things that we really want to work towards is healing and healing and fixing that relationship. Um, there is a really deep-rooted history um, between the police and, you know, marginalized communities. Um, when we go all the way back to uh, Slave Hunters, right? And, and, and the kind of real, initial iteration of the badge. Um, and so when we think about how deep-rooted that history actually is, um, I think that it's important to at least think about how we heal, right? Because even if say we do dismantle the current system, um, how do we how do we build back up from there? And I think no matter what, it starts with healing in the communities and building trust back and putting power back in the hands of community members. Um, I think that the biggest issue with the police right now is unchecked power. Um, mm-hmm. And so when we can start to see if we can shift some of that back power back into the hands of community members, um, we'll really start to see a significant difference. And, um, Communities should be able to trust in themselves, as Kamal said in the chat over here. Um, And so when we shift the power back into these in the hands of the communities, it allows them to be the leaders. Um, And that goes for a lot of these other priorities, too, when it comes to economics as well, too. Right. We have to trust the communities are the best deciders for their fate.
0: You talk about having a a sense of power and uh, it seems to me that police unions hold a lot of unchecked power. This is true nationwide. And your legislative agenda points out that many officers who commit even felony misconduct are able to keep their jobs through something called collective bargaining. Kamal, I wonder if you could just tell us briefly how that works and how, how we would take on that problem.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think exactly to Sam's point, um, we shouldn't have to go on faith. Uh, when it's things um, that have life uh, and death matters for our lives. We should be able to have uh, structures that are in place um, to protect life when it comes to policing. And one of the things that's uh, uh, taken place, um, you know, Uh, again, over these past few uh, decades, as, um, you know, going back to the the vote, right? People have, you know, for votes in a place in in our democracy is these police departments have um, over time taken um, power away from the public and they've used and abused uh, uh, union negotiating contracts to negotiate not just for pay, which I think, you know, folks on on this podcast that believe in economic justice think people should be get paid fair work, uh, fair, fair pay for fair work, but they've started negotiating away accountability. And it's that um that and it's uh, because of that, that we see these tragic videos come across our timelines and on TV. And it seems like no one can do anything about it because you go to the police chief, the police chief says, I'm management, you know, there's a internal process for that. You try to talk to, and I'm sure Representative Johnson can, can talk about this um, back when he was uh, at the city in federal way. Folks go try and talk to their city council members, and their city council members, you know, find that it's really difficult to, to try and investigate. And so one of the things first we have to do is have community oversight that can subpoena and investigate and find out uh, what happens when a tragedy t- takes place, and then be able to issue out recommendations and discipline. Because uh, I guarantee you there's, there's no one in Tacoma after finding out um, what took place with those officers and all of that feel that uh, that was okay, or, you know, or those officers should have been able to... Um, go back on the force. No one, no one believes that. This isn't um, uh, an issue. We've already won hearts and minds on that front. And what we outlined in the policy paper is, on top of that, we have to be able to de-license police officers who failed to uh, uphold and protect uh, life, and especially Black lives. Currently, there's a kind of uh, structure where a lot of people, even when they're recommended to be de-licensed, you have police officers saying that the folks that they supervise have done something so egregious, they shouldn't have um, a badge anymore, and they're still allowed to be on the force. So I know there's a specific bill about that. And then, of course, we're eventually going to have to reform these union contracts so that people have power again.
0: So, the bill that you're referring to, I believe, is uh, another uh, uh, Representative Johnson Prime sponsored bill. This is HB 1082, which would increase accountability and expand the grounds on which an officer can be decertified for conduct. Representative uh, Johnson, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about the bill. And first and foremost, what what does it mean for an officer to be decertified?
3: Well, actually, that's uh, Representative Goodman and Senator Peterson's bill. So, I'm going to make sure I give them- but um, I can speak to it. So this bill, basically what it will do is uh, clarify the process for which an officer can be decertified. So um, the criminal justice training commission, that is the body that has to decertify the officer. So this legislation expands the grounds on which an officer can be decertified. And then it also clarifies that an officer does not have to be fired first before they can be decertified for their conduct, because that's one of the issues we see as well when local departments don't wanna fire their officer for uh, a lot of different reasons, and then the CJTC can't act. And so right now, that's, that's one thing that it's clarifying. It also is changing the composition. The CJTC has 16 members, and right now only two members are community members. The rest are attorneys, law enforcement, and so on. And this is gonna increase the number of community board members to nine, which is gonna be majority community for the first time in our state's history to make those calls on decertification. So it's a really important bill. Uh, accountability, I feel like it, it's it's a it's a constellation of a lot of different parts. And that's why our coalition decided to come together and spread out the bills. Um, Representative Meadlin Tai's bill on civic cause of action and qualified immunity is gonna be just as important in terms of enforcement as Representative Intamin's bill on independent investigations and prosecutions, same as my tactics bill and community oversight. So they all work together. And that's how we get accountability when all these bills work in line in alignment.
0: I also wanna to touch on something called qualified immunity. Uh, and this is a legal principle that has shielded police officers from criminal liability and civilian killings uh, in actually in, in ex- many extraordinarily high profile uh, cases. Um, I, I would note that there are uh, th- there is a bill, and, and Representative Johnson, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I, I believe that it is HB 1202 that would increase civil penalties for people injured by police conduct. Is that correct?
3: Yes, I'm not sure if that's the the bill number. I can't remember exactly, but I believe you're right. 1202. <laughs>
0: So I would just ask, uh, Sam, if, if you could, uh, and we talked about this in, in PrEP, um, my understanding of uh, qualified immunity is somewhat limited, and you said that you would kind of flesh it out for us a little bit. So what is qualified immunity, and how is it used?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it first arose as a, um, as a defense um, in court, um, in a, as a way to be able to defend officers or shield officers from civil rights claims. Um, and really, it's kind of grown into this way that you officers have been allowed to uh, say that any act or you know targeted act against you know people of color, in particular black people, um, is valid, due to the due to the role, due to being a police officer. Um, and so, really, you know, a defendant such as a police officer can use this defense and say that they're acting within their official capacity. And their actions are protected by this qualified immunity. Um, and this was something that the Supreme Court had ruled on, um, I believe, in 1967. And so this is something that again, and re- really similar to Kramal's earlier points that um, uh, in combi- in collaboration with the police union and these over in these internal investigations, um, on top of that, in court, they're also, they can also claim that whatever they did was in the you know, um in the spirit of the badge. And so that's really one of the biggest issues and challenges with qualified immunity. And it just compile some of these issues around accountability, right? And so just so if you say you do get your trial, you know, that goes to court and now an officer can say, I have qual- I have qualified immunity. And so it just kind of continues to, to compile some of these challenges on, on accountability.
0: One more question, and then we'll get to audience questions uh, in earnest here. Uh, and this is the final bucket in the legislative agenda, and that is demilitarizing the police. And Representative Johnson, you touched on this earlier. Um, you're uh, you're demanding an end to the practice of the military giving surplus equipment to state and local police. And, you know, I'll ask you, is this something that would need to happen beyond the federal level? Uh, This year's uh, NDA, the National Defense Authorization, uh, curtails military equipment uh, to state and local law enforcement. I'm wondering what can happen at the state legislative level?
3: Well, this is something we considered. Um, And so one of the programs is called the 1033 program, where the military, the federal government actually issues uh, military surplus equipment to local departments. And so that's how a lot of departments are procuring a lot of this, these equipment. And so this would stop that, it would effectively end and say, you cannot procure military style equipment from the federal government any any longer. Uh, Montana had a bill around this in 2015. A lot of states are moving towards this and the demilitarization effort, but it also is gonna restrict um, you know, current currently held procurement of those, uh, of that equipment. So, you know, everything like I mentioned earlier, um, from grenades to armed vehicles to armed helicopters and uh, rocket launchers and such, because a lot of that that equipment is also taking up space. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it, once you have it, it, it's harder to get rid of it. And it also um, allows for, for police to to show up differently in, in the community that we don't want them to show up looking like Um, military. And so I think that's, it sends a wrong message to the community. So I think that's what we're trying to address here. Um, We wanted to start looking at military style um, training as well, which is another issue in the training, but uh, we weren't able to get to that in this bill. But I think that's another thing we'll look at in the future is uh, the training that's being received. What does that look like? And how do we make sure that it reflects community values as well?
0: Just uh, circling back to uh, personal police accountability, we have a a question. We'll get into audience questions now. Elizabeth Scott says uh, a New York bill was introduced that would require police officers to obtain personal liability insurance to cover civil lawsuits filed against them for excessive force and other abuses as a way to deter misconduct. Has that been thought of here? Representative Johnson, anything to your knowledge there?
3: I'm going to have to look at this question again. I'm looking in the chat now.
0: Yeah, so, basically what she's saying is police officers actually had to get personal liability insurance to cover the civil lawsuits that would be filed against them for excessive force. And so right. this this would ideally be a way of deterring uh, excessive force and misconduct. I, I don't know if this is something that could be taken on at the legislative level. It seems to have been in New York.
3: Yeah, it, it definitely was. I did hear about that. So we don't have a bill that's exactly the equivalent of that. Um, What we do have is Representative Tye's bill, which will bring monetary damages for families and private attorneys that want to uh, in the civil court against uh, individual officers. So this this really is kind of getting at that, you know, as Sam mentioned, that qualified immunity as a defense uh, from use of force. And so um, we're trying to, to change that because when there's no incentive to change bad behavior, It 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 erodes the the process of of trust with the community and it makes everyone less safe. So that's what that bill is trying to do. But the liability insurance, um, I don't think there's a bill around that. That's definitely something to consider. I'm, I'm interested to see how that goes in New York.
0: Yeah, likewise. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually would, uh, curious to see where that goes as well. We had a question about uh, black businesses. Um, and Sam, I'll ask you this. How do we increase, they ask, how do we increase investment in black and brown owned businesses? And this is interesting because in the legislative uh, agenda write up, uh, they mentioned this in the context of the, the pandemic recovery and, and how we can't have a quote unquote colorblind recovery. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that one of the key pieces that was already highlighted before is um, one accessibility and making sure that these things are accessible to folks and that they're clearly communicated to these communities of color. Um, When you think about who knows about business grants, business loans, who can take advantage of business grants and business loans, how difficult it is to even be able to try to apply for these things, what type of requirements are necessary to be able to apply these things. We really need to think through what accessibility looks like for some of these supports. Um, And I think that there's a a direct need to be intentional. Um, I think that as for a really long time, and really even now folks get really nervous about direct cash benefits and making sure that folks have direct cash. I think that we're a proponent of making sure that we put money right back directly into the hands of community members. And again, continuing that trust in our communities that they know what's best for themselves. And so, again, making sure that we tear down those challenges to accessibility and just getting stuff directly to folks as, as, as efficiently, quickly, easily as possible.
0: Allison House, I see your question. We're actually going to close on that. So I'll put a pin in that for just a moment. We had a question about prison labor. Uh, the, the the questioner wrote, uh, prison labor is a form of modern slavery. How do we push for fair compensation? And I know that Washington for Black Lives has a number of proposals to take on uh, prison labor. Uh, I, I'm wondering, actually, Kamal, can you kind of set the stage for us and talk about the scope of the problem?
2: Absolutely. So, um one thing we uh, did when we were uh crafting the uh policy paper for washington for black lives is dug into this issue where um, washington state currently has a, a single contract with a private company that then uses uh prison labor um to uh they they a claim that gives people skills or um something to do, but uh when you dig into it, you find that um folks are getting paid um anywhere from 25 cents to a dollar fifteen an hour. Um and uh and, you know, that's uh, clearly unjust and those people are disproportionately um, black, brown folks. And we, uh, we're calling for um, increasing that minimum wage to the state minimum wage, um, you know, investigating uh, that contract and seeing how we can bolster worker protections just because you're incarcerated doesn't mean that you shouldn't have uh, access to, to labor rights um, and, and the working condition that you're in. And also make sure that um, these include apprenticeship and other programs where folks can actually come uh, out and reenter and be able to work in the jobs uh, that they were working in when they were incarcerated. You know, all too often what will happen is, um, you know, you'll find articles where uh, folks are incarcerated, they're fighting, you know, the wildfires. And then when they get out, they can't find a job as a firefighter. Currently, there's a labor uh, sort of commission that meets times a year to kind of oversee this. And one of the things we're doing is working with uh, legislators to try and uh, craft legislation that would actually bring, um, you know, uh, labor standards in tune with human rights for the folks that are incarcerated in Washington state. You know, you asked, uh, earlier, one of the things that we point to all the time is, um, if you look at Washington state's budget, uh, policing and prisons makes up 2.6 billion of what we're spending and, uh, economic programs are about 800 million. And there's a lot of people, Washington state would look at that and say, you know, um, how are we, uh, how is this reflect? How is this budget reflecting our values? And one of the things that um, we need to do is uh, make sure that we're decarcerating, and at the same time for the people that are in there and looking for programs to better reenter, that those things are actually compensating them well, they're not getting nickel and dimed with fees, and we have uh, just a system that's actually just for the people in Washington state.
0: We also had a question about SROs. Uh, These are school resource officers. These are armed officers who are ostensibly there for student safety. Um, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but white families tend to be in favor of them, and they tend to have uh, very negative impacts on black and brown students. Samuel, I I don't know if you have data on this. Can you talk a little bit about what we know about SROs' impact on black and brown students?
1: Well, we know that one more than 24 percent of elementary schools and 42 percent of high schools nationwide have school police officers embedded in their campuses. And these numbers are higher for predominantly black and um, you know Latino schools. So 51 percent have regularly stationed police school or school police officers. Um, and so, again, this really speaks to um, what we think about, you know, black and brown communities and black and brown kids and how oftentimes um, they are over criminalized, especially at a younger age. Um, we think about the involvement in juvenile in juvenile justice, juvenile restoration, and how young people are often really targeted, and our communities are targeted. And we know through the data that it doesn't actually lead to yield more results or yield to better results. It doesn't yield safer schools, um, and again, it victimizes our young people, um, and it makes them feel safe and not welcome in their school settings. Right, and so uh, we really want to make sure that we we do address this, and it again to come out earlier point what we spend on police and law enforcement versus what we spend on economic recovery and you know what we also spend on education and what we could spend towards um you know increasing and having more school social workers or having more school supports and you know school you know better health programs and things like that and so again why are we heavily policing our children um in the spirit of quote-unquote safety when we know that it doesn't actually lead to safer schools
0: Representative Johnson, and actually Kirsten Hansen has dovetailed on this question and, and wants to know uh, if there is anything uh, in, in the works that might uh, either um, uh, require schools to have uh, enough professional staff as counselors, like, people like counselors, before they can invest in an SRO?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, part of the bill that Rep. Tonneson is working on is basically clarifying data. Um, to see how many school resource officers we actually have, the number of safety and security staff versus mental health counselors, restorative justice staff, and then also clarifying the role and description of their job description, which across the state can vary. But I think every single school resource officer is a law-commissioned police officer. So we have actual police that are working in our buildings, but then if the role is not the same or standardized, what's happening is there's more... Um, data that that Sam mentioned around in schools that are predominantly black and brown, like in the district that I serve in the Federal Way, where there's a lot more data referrals to the juvenile justice system. And that's how the school to prison pipeline is created. So we're trying to look in this bill, House Bill 1214, we're trying to look at that data. We're also having a, a training program for staff that's being developed with the educational service districts across the state and having um, community a part of that process. So we don't have a bill that's basically saying you can't have an SRO yet. I know that's kind of the direction that we'd love to hit at some point because the data just shows um, that they're causing more harm predominantly in uh, schools with more kids of color, but um, this bill will clarify the data, clarify the role of the SRO and actually look at training.
0: We have a lot of bill trackers watching tonight, Hi gang. Uh, if you would, as we go along here, if you can include information if you the ledge.wa.gov information on these bills uh, within the chat bar, that would be uh, just incredibly appreciated. I know that Kat's been doing some of that as well. Um, we're kind of up against the clock here and I will just I, 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 will, I think we'll end on this. You know we've talked about a number of bills. Uh, tonight. Um, and, And I'm wondering how we see generally the challenges of getting meaningful legislation across the finish line. Uh, this year, and particularly Representative Johnson, obviously, you're in a position to uh, to know what the lay of the land is in the, the you know, in, in the state legislature this year. Uh, I think, you know, th- things are necessarily limited because it's online. It's a pandemic. Uh, how do you see, although I will add uh, racial equity and police reform managed to make it into the Democratic caucus priorities. So how do you see some of the, the chances of some of these bills making it through?
3: You know, it's going to be interesting because uh, one of the things that we know with this virtual reality we're living in and, and the Digisphere in which we're having a session right now is that it's it's taking longer. Um, and so I think what we're going to have to do is really prioritize bills. That's why uh, we're really trying to get the police tactics bill, the data collection bill, and the DCERT bill um, on exec session next week so that we can get it to the floor by week three and four. Because even in a long session, the session goes by so quickly. So if you we have the tactics bill heard on day two, and the soonest it can be heard on the floor is week four, and so that's that's how time takes, and so we have to really prioritize bills. We've been told that we'll probably pass maybe 500 bills based on the timing with the virtual session. In a normal session, we pass 2,500, so it's about a fifth of what we normally would pass. So talking with leadership about the most important bills and getting them um, ready to go uh, beginning is going to be important. And then also working with Republicans because part of the process and why bills don't make it to the floor is that the stalling process, there's a lot of strategy involved in policy and uh, the amendment process. And so we're really going to have to work to make sure that that we limit that and also uh, get our advocates out to remotely testify on bills uh, so that we show up strong.
0: Well, uh, Sam, and I, I know that you may bristle at this word uh, a little bit, but you are a lobbyist. And so I, I'm wondering how you see the challenges of, of getting some of this, this legis- legislation across the finish line this year, given all of the dynamics that uh, Representative Johnson just talked about.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, one of the biggest and hardest challenges, of course, is not being in person and, you know, really being able to have some of these one-off conversations with folks and being able to, you know, travel folks when they grab coffee. Um, But again, I think the even bigger piece is being able to be in, um, you know, working in being a strong advocate with opposition, right, and working with opposition and really trying to make sure that we're um, trying to change as many minds and as, as we can change some hearts too. Um, and so I think that that's the biggest piece is really making sure that we are really working in collaboration during this limited session because we don't have a lot of time to work on things. Um, and again, I think also mobilizing our community, making sure that folks are out there, they are verbal, they're present, they're seen, um, even in the digital space and making sure that we kind of make continue to make our voices heard. Um, so I think that that would be the big, those are some of the uh, biggest pieces and challenges. But it's also we're. I'm hopeful that we have that we can get a lot done, um, even with this abbreviated set or this, you know, different. Mm. Test, this <laughs> different <Yeah. test. laughs>
0: well, you know, on that last note, are there specific asks uh, that Washington for Black Lives has? I mean, you are talking to an audience of extraordinarily committed activists. And these, these are people who walk their talk. Um, what would you like progressive activists specifically to do to help?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Testifying on behalf of bills, um, scheduling meetings with legislators, one-on-one meetings, being able to reach out to the folks in your community. Um, we're doing social media posts and social media campaigns, um, really as, as, in as many ways as possible, following different pieces of the legislation that we talked about tonight that we posted in the chat um, and, and just keeping track of those. And, you know, I think spreading the word is going to be the biggest piece. Um, As we said, it is, you know, police reform managed to make it into our priorities or the legislature's priorities this year, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be an easy, um, doesn't mean it's just an automatic, um, automatic passage. So we need our folks to be mobilized. We need folks to be spreading the word. And again, meeting with your own folks and continuing to spread the word. Well,
0: yeah, Kamau, I was just going to bring you into this and I will just let people know Kamau was one of the very first, uh, it was a DACA recipient, one of the very first uh, people that I interviewed on this podcast. I would love to know what you think about uh, in terms of what we as progressive activists can, can be doing to help out the Washington for Black Lives legislative agenda.
2: Um, thanks so much. I mean, I think the the folks who are listening to this and have been on um, you know, many of us who have been organizing for a long time or some of us who got really involved um, after we saw, you know, uh, uh, everything seemed to, to break down in, in 2016. Something that we've um, found uh, out, right, is uh, quality um, organizing sometimes can be much more impactful than just like the quantity of calls. Right, we've, we've, we've made enough calls to Congress now that uh, we know that uh, our representative's office tracks the, those, those things, but other representatives who, you know, um, uh, don't, uh, for, for whom we're not their constituents, like they might not necessarily care what we have to say. So your ability to talk to two or three other people and let them know, um, hey, visit WashingtonForBlackLives.org. Scroll down to uh, that email. Join that email and uh, email list, and look out for calls to action. Especially if you know that they are on one one of some of the the, the critical committees, like the Oversight Committee that, that deals with policing, where Representative Johnson is Vice Chair, or the Local Government Committee, because you know policing is, is a local and municipal. Uh, issue, um, and we you know we also uh, push them to uh, subscribe. We, for the first time, created a life slave tracker and newsletter that is just about the top five priorities that we've seen for communities of color, with kind of what's happening and a what's like one action you can take. The last thing that I'll say is um, because I'm around fellow organizers, and that's who's listening. Is you know we always have a crisis of prioritization. Um, as progressives, right? We want all of the justice and we want all of it right, right now. But you know, of course, I really think that we can get it all done. But, um, you know, if you're someone out there and you're wondering what is like the one thing, what is like the one thing, the community oversight bill is so critical because whenever you have to do prioritization and there's the option of power on the table, take power every single time if we can pass community oversight and every city with um, you know police force over 10 officers has uh, not just an empowered community oversight standard that they have to follow, right? There's no more of this uh, wiggling your way and creating a sort of task force um, that doesn't really do anything, but no, you have to meet a state standard and it has to be funded proportional to the size of the police in that city, that's going to be huge because now you have the power to craft the change that you see. Um, even if Congress isn't doing anything and even like Olympia doesn't pass the full sweep of bills that we want, if you walk away with a, one thing and that one thing is power, then you have the ability to kind of, you know, that's the, the, the sort of Uh, not you unraveling and unravels everything else. So um, I'm excited for the work you're doing um, and pushing, uh, ask people to um, subscribe to our newsletter, find out what's going on, follow Washington for Black Lives, um, donate to them. They're gonna be giving calls to action and, You know, stay tuned, talk to your uh, friends who are in those uh, districts of the members that are going to make the decision about whether this actually goes to a forward vote and whether it's on Inslee's desk uh, to sign by the time session is over.
0: Representative Johnson, I'm, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, I'm sure that you're aware because you've been on the program before uh, that you have many, many, many fans who are watching here tonight. We're huge fans of your work. So I would just uh, ask you uh, for final words. What what would you what would be your specific asks of us as uh, as progressive activists?
3: You know, um, yeah, I really feel like we're at a fork in the road when it when it when it leads to, to progressive progressive policy and, and especially around police reform, like Kamal mentioned, like, you know, so much has happened in this past year. So much of our uh, of our system has really been um, put to the test and our organizers have been put to the test and they've met the challenge. Um, over the summer, we saw the organizers, the families, the civil rights advocates, just the people that came in solidarity to march and protest and demonstrate. And now it's literally at the point where we have to get this legislation passed, but then we have to do the work to make sure it's getting enforced on the ground as well. And so it's really um, an inside outside game to make sure that this works. And uh, like I said, um, I would just ask that folks continue to stay just as vigilant as they did over the summer when we were marching. And I know that they are, at least the folks that I know, like Kamal and Sam, are working hard every day. So we just have to stay vigilant with this and get it through the finish line. Um, I used to run track and field, and this is the last. The last uh, 100 for a four by one. This is like, you know, the final part, you know, to get it across that finish line. And we just we can't slow up now. We have to continue to push and continue to, to fight for for, for progress. And, and that's how we create change. And that's how we get to a point where we have um, what our young people this prophetic vision for the future and what it should look like. We're reaching that point. It's It's actually sooner. It could come sooner than we think. But we have to get there and have to get across this finish line with these bills and policies. So uh, continue to, to, to stay vigilant, fight the good fight uh, this session, and we'll get it done.
0: We will be at your back, and uh, we will certainly be watching all the incredible work that you do in session this year. Kamau Chege, Samuel Martin, and uh, Representative Jesse Johnson, thank you all so much. This has been so enlightening, really wonderful. My thanks this week again to Kat Pipkin, Julian Njiefsky, Kevin Jones, Louise Pate, and Robin Gittleman. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.